the excitement and the joy that we each feel this afternoon having been blessed the way that we have only helps us appreciate the rich privilege it's ours to not only be called a Christian but to be able to assemble in the name of the God of heaven and to do so in a land that offers us the opportunity to do that with freedom and without fear of molestation or harassment from others. It, in fact, is a tremendous consideration to think again of those around the world who are our brothers and sisters in Christ who have not had that joy today, but have had to meet under cover of darkness, under cover of secretive places for fear that they might have been seen in doing so. We should each thank God so richly for the easiness with which we've been able to come together today. And a part of that not only allows us to consider the songs that we've sung and the prayers that we have uttered collectively, but also to open His Word and to be uplifted and challenged and led on the pathway of rightness. Tonight, as we consider a lesson entitled Reflections on the Creation, a few moments ago, Brother Greg read for us from the opening verse in all of the book of God, the opening verse in the sacred volume. As we begin to consider just a few of the thoughts that we can perhaps appreciate from that very first verse alone, might we begin with some introductory statements somewhat along this line. Isn't it still amazing the brilliance that surrounds us so majestically, especially at a time of the year, a season like this one? Yesterday I heard several remarks from those that enjoyed the outside, the sunshine and the remarkable array of colors that were beginning to appear on the leaves, the richness of the clarity of the air with a relatively low humidity, all of it seems to be testifying so grandly about the hand that made it all and that allows us with the capabilities and senses to enjoy it. As I began to think about the opening verse in the Bible, there in fact are many things concerning the creation that can even be considered by us from this very first verse in the Bible alone. Some introductory thoughts though might be these. The creation itself is not a trivial subject. It is somewhat easy, admittedly, to pass through life and not perhaps ponder as often as we might the handiwork about us. As we shall see in our study tonight, it does testify gloriously of the hand that made it. But from another perspective, it can easily well be noted. Not only is this not a trivial subject, we shall shortly find it is one of the bedrock teachings in all the book of God appearing so very frequently. So much so that, in fact, it is not missed by many in our world today. There are those on one camp who will in fact claim that the whole matter of a creation, per se, the scriptures, is only something held by those uneducated folks that just don't know any better. Those who really are not intellectual, they don't know and are not understanding of the premises and principles of science. But in a far opposite camp, there are those who cling tenaciously to the thought of the creation it will, and will compromise it in no way, no matter what. We shall have to study tonight and ask, in what way does God's book present the creation and the majesty with which God founded it and brought it about? I believe we shall discover rather dramatically that the way the Bible presents it, not only is it not trivial, it again is a fundamental and significant matter that you and I cannot compromise if we expect to have the blessing of God on our behalf concerning our faith. Maybe one other concept before we begin our study more thoroughly. That opening verse in the Bible, right? Maybe you've committed to memory, have often read it and quoted it yourself. In the beginning, 
God created the heaven and the earth. That presentation from the King James translation, I thought we would take a look tonight at each phrase in that verse, looking at it from a perspective of what ultimately is being set forth, and use that as a guidepost and also as a standard to help us more thoroughly understand the creation. Without further ado, let's turn our attention to the opening three words in that verse. In the beginning. Isn't it still a somewhat interesting thing that the opening statement in all of the book of God is a prepositional phrase? In the beginning. God didn't begin with a noun. He didn't start the Bible with a verb. He started it with a preposition. And with that thought in mind, might we notice the prepositional phrase has a dramatic thrust behind it. In the beginning. Testified directly and forthrightly is the fact then that there was a beginning. The universe, the cosmos, if you will, is not eternal. There have been occasions and times in the history of mankind in which it was set forth and taught that the universe is an eternal thing. It has always been, so they said, and it shall always be. The book of God in the opening phrase of the opening verse says that's not so. There was a moment, a beginning, an instant at which it all began. With the reality of that thought presented in this opening verse, it is still an interesting thing. The word beginning seems to hint at an origin for time. Even from the perspective of science, time is still a rather fascinating thing. We can set clocks and calendars and stopwatches and sundials and a whole host of other time-keeping devices. And yet when one comes to the recognition of the most basic nature of time, it had its start right here. Prior to Genesis 1 verse 1, there was no such thing as time. But then God chose to create this thing known as time, and it had an orderly part to play in every one of the days that followed. For notice, God kept the time with it. There was a first day, a second day, a third day, and so forth. It is still true, isn't it, that the sun did not come along till day four, keeping us for, for firmly in thought that here what took place on days one to three predated the sun. That is to say, there was no sun-keeping mechanism for this time in the beginning. That nature of the beginning perhaps leads us to two final statements before we look further in the verse. The nature that there is a beginning. Science would agree with us on that point. Sometimes we hear various and sundry ideas about what science teaches and what science proclaims about the initial moments of the universe. Science would agree with us that there is a beginning. In fact, two rather respected fields of study, cosmology on the one hand, thermodynamics on the other, both shout loud and clear there was a moment of beginning. However, it's at that point that the two things part company. Those in those camps, such as thermodynamics and cosmology, far more often than not will claim that beginning was billions and billions of years in the past. However, the nature of the book of God says it hasn't been nearly as long as that. It is far more recent, in fact. So much so that it is not numbered in the billions of years. It is not numbered in the millions of years. It is not even numbered in the hundreds of thousands of years. It is numbered only in a few thousand years at most. 
that helps us see that here the companies again have diverged significantly. But let it still be noted, there was a beginning. One perhaps can only question, given that the universe had a beginning, what about its distant fate in the future? Will it have an end? Or will it be eternal from this perspective forward? The Bible again does not lead us to question very long, for we learn in Second Peter 3 verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with, a, away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. It is still a dramatic thing to note heavens was mentioned by the inspired writer Peter. The heavens will be dissolved. It is not eternal from the perspective forward either. It shall have an end. No wonder we're admonished throughout the sacred scriptures to ever be prepared for we know not when that end may be. The day of the Lord, in fact, will come as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2. And when our Savior makes that position in time of returning, time will be no more. What began in Genesis 1 verse 1 will find its final and terminal point on that occasion. In the beginning... The opening pronouncement then in all the Bible had to do with the origin and establishment of time. But let's turn to verse four, to the fourth word in this verse as well. What else do we learn from the opening verse in all the book of God? In the beginning, God. We have just noted that there was nothing physical prior to the establishment and the record of this creation. There was no space, no time, nothing that could be physically appreciated. It was in existence prior to God's creation of it. However, there was something in existence. It just wasn't physical. There was God. The scripture set before us the beautiful and almost fathomless appreciation that this being known as God, He has always been, He is now, and He shall always be. He is truly eternal, had no beginning, and shall have no end. The realization then that the Bible does not even attempt to explain the origin and nature of God in the sense that most world religions have thought it necessary to do. Isn't it still somewhat laughable and almost funny at times to think about, for instance, Greek mythology, this varying array of gods known and quietly accorded to be extremely powerful. Those gods such as Zeus and Apollos and all those others, but yet the Greek mythological presentation thought it necessary to explain where those gods came from. Many of them, by the way, were born in various fornication events from various other pre-existent gods. The Bible does not stoop to such nonsense. It simply says, God is, He was, and He will be. In the beginning, God. That thought, in fact, occurs so often in the Bible that it's difficult to miss it. How often is, in fact, the record of God's creation used to help us appreciate the grandness of who He is, what He's capable of doing, and the fact that He is the all-present and great God of heaven. That thought leads me to share some verses, not the least of which would be some of them I've listed on the screen, of course, to, to my left, to your right. In Psalm 148, verse 5, we have there the statement, it was God that made the heavens and the earth. Where did they come from, said the psalmist? God fashioned them. He made them. They are the direct product of His creative activity. 
But not only that, in Exodus 3 verse 14, speaking again about this eternal character of God, it is still a truly amazing thing to consider the conversation that took place between God and Moses. Remember, this was at the scene of the burning bush. God said, Moses, go and bring my people out of Egypt. Moses initially was hesitant. In fact, he said, well, if I were to go, who should I tell them has sent me? God said, you say, I am that I am has sent you. That ought to be good enough. I am that I am. I simply am one who exists. I had no beginning. I will have no end. I am. One of the certain things you and I know about life in the flesh is that it is not permanent. We know that it is going to come to a crashing end at some point. No matter how joyous the occasion of the birth of a baby is, one thing that is known is that there's coming a time at some point in the future when that life will be no more in the flesh. The realization then that one considers God simply is. He is eternal. In various texts, such as Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist again lauds the greatness of God from the perspective of saying, From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He was here before the mountains were ever formed. That's the very statement of Psalm 90, verse 1. The character then of God's divinity, His deity, His eternity, is truly an amazing thing to consider. And yet, the opening verse in the Bible testifies God was at that moment, and He still is. In addition, in Isaiah 57, verse 15, who in all the Bible is said to inhabit eternity? Have you ever pondered the thoroughness of that text? One usually doesn't think of eternity being like a house that you can inhabit. But yet, the Scriptures testify that it's God, the holy God of heaven, that inhabits eternity. He fills it full of meaning. He provides it with the thoroughness of what it is for us to consider. And one day, what we shall enjoy in the grandeur and the climbs of heaven. The one who inhabits eternity. It would perhaps be well to note too concerning this opening verse in the Bible. The word God is the subject of that sentence. But notice the word in the King James translation has all the appearance of being singular. When in fact in Hebrew the word is plural. God is plural in this opening verse in the Bible. Setting before us the thought that even in this opening verse in all of God's book is the testimony that though personalities that inhabit the nature of God are more than one. Of course, the unfolding plan of the Bible reveals that it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all were present at the occurrence of Genesis 1, verse 1. God is plural. Later, in fact, in this chapter, have we not often made note in verse 26 when God said, Let us make man in our image, plural pronouns on two occasions. God has referenced then to the fullness of the Godhead encompassing all three. As we learn later in Colossians 1 verse 16, in terms of the member of the Godhead who in fact is said to have expressly executed the plan of creation, it was the Son. It was He who is said it was by Him and for Him that all things were made. Verses 16 and 17 of Colossians chapter 1. God in the beginning. Maybe one last thought before we consider what's next in this verse. 
Science, again, attributes that which occurred at the beginning, at least in many instances, to a so-called Big Bang. A rather nondescript name, by the way. And we're told that at the very outset of time, at least by many cosmologists, that all of the energy and all of the matter that then could have been imagined was in an incredibly small, infinitesimally tiny point. And it began to explode. And in that explosion, it has come to evolve, so we're told, into the various galaxies and solar systems and even planet Earth. There is not the slightest hint of any such thing in the book of God. God was in the beginning. And over the next several verses, which we shall not consider in the lesson tonight, God, in an orderly and precise way, brought about things, and it is in no way near the order that science says from the Big Bang it should have come about. In fact, the time frame is far amiss from the cosmologist's perspective. But is it not still easy to be said that the Bible, especially in the last book, testifies that, quite frankly, it's an insult to God when one does not rightly manifest the nature of his creation and attribute it to him. Let's note that again. In Revelation 4.11, the very last verse of the fourth chapter of that book, as the creation is described, the word glory is used, and the writer there, John, affirms that it is in fact a glory to God when one manifests and appreciates the creation itself directly leading us to see that when we thus attribute the matters that are in fact from creation to some hand other than God's, be it a big bang, be it some other kind of scientific happenstance, that is nothing short of an insult to the creative nature of God and in fact blasphemous itself. God made all of this. It did not just happen. It didn't come about by some trial and error process over literally billions of years. God brought this about in the specific mechanism and means testifying and manifesting His greatness and His capability to bring all things about according to His will and for the purpose of good. What's more? The Revelation also helps us see in that same fourth chapter and on into the fifth one, that the reality of the creation should be a testimony to the one who brought all of this about. Perhaps the question still can very appropriately be asked, how can one look about and see the various things we see and attribute that to some kind of cosmic explosion that happened so long in the past? Here is still a very good question. If you take a package of dynamite and set it off in a junkyard, does it make a fully, properly made Boeing 747? Does it even fashion a completely made car that functions and is ready to be used? It does not. An explosion only leads to greater and greater disorder. It leads to that which does not even have the respect of order that was there before. How can it be reasonably thought that an explosion could lead to the orderliness we see in this universe? The specific character of what is seen not only cosmologically but even on this earth in a terrestrial fashion. The seas have a well-defined place. Jeremiah 5 and Jeremiah 10 as well testify. And there are currents and paths in it that know their place and they operate in an orderly fashion. 
Friend, that kind of order doesn't come about from an explosion. An explosion, again, only produces greater disorder. It is truly a fascinating to think what the mind of man can set forth in moments that are of lesser appreciation of logic. But in fact, not only the word God, what comes next in this verse? Next is the verb create. In the beginning, God created. Notice some of the statements that we might appreciate even about this verb. The Hebrew verb is B-A-R-A. And in this particular instance, the application means creation ex nihilo. That is to say, creation out of nothing. It's not as though God started with some other parts and fashioned them into what He wanted. He literally spoke the creation out of nothing. There was nothing before that existed. That truly, I would submit, is likely beyond your ability and mind to fathom. For a being to speak things literally into creation, into existence, out of nothing. God did that. He could do that. Not a scientist in this world can come close to it. Let no one fool you. In fact, notice the inspired Hebrew writer's testimony to this point. In the third verse of Hebrews 11, the Hebrew writer said, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That is to say, God didn't take something that was already in existence and reshape it or modify it. He literally spoke things into existence that prior to that were not in existence. That's what this creation has to describe for you and me. As I mentioned earlier, the thought then that scientists could even consider such a thing is beyond, in fact, scientific law at this point. One of the most cherished laws in all of science is the first law of thermodynamics. Even our youngsters in early grades are asked to appreciate the basic tenets of that statement. It is as simple as this. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed, only converted from one form to another. Notice that directly states that what occurred here can never happen again, period, according to the natural laws of science. For it's not possible to create anything, so scientists tell us. And in fact, not a single experiment has ever violated that premise. The thought then that what God did here to speak the universe into existence, to bring about time and space, and to do so in such a majestic fashion, does that not speak to truly how omnipotent He is? How truly great He really is? As I mentioned earlier, so many verses in the Bible speak to this aspect of creation. And again, it might be noted, it is an insult to God to attribute any of this to any other being or any other fashion. In Psalm 33, verse 9, God spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The power and majesty of that text is truly grand. He spoke and it was done relative to the creation. He commanded and it stood fast. Notice it occurred exactly and precisely, not only the way, but when he said it would. Later in Jeremiah 32, 17, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? In that very text, Jeremiah made statement of God's creative activity in both heaven and earth and said, Nothing is too hard for thee. 
that again was referring to God and what happened to the creation. And it was to be a lesson for ancient Israel that notice you're headed to captivity. If you will turn back to him, submit your life to him, he can again bring you to a point of livelihood to where you will not go into captivity. Sadly, though, the people of Jeremiah's day didn't learn that lesson very well. Notice some other passages that I've chose to, for us to consider. Not only in the Old Testament, several of which I've listed, but others even in the New. In Mark 13, 19, not long before our Savior was crucified, yet one more time it was stated of God that He brought forth the heavens and the earth. In Acts the 17th chapter, standing in the second missionary journey there in the ancient city of Athens, those that were the intelligentsia of the ancient world, Paul stood for before them and said, It's God that's made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in it. It wasn't those mythological Greek gods. It weren't any others that they might imagine. It was the God of heaven that did it. Paul stood before them and told directly the truth, did he not? And there's a point in the Roman letter when the issue is so plain that it in fact sets before us a matter of responsibility. In the 20th verse of Romans chapter 1, we have in fact again Paul who is addressing, of course, the congregation at Rome. That congregation that was in the imperial city, the, in fact the center city of the ancient world. And yet to this people who could so easily have been influenced by Roman thoughts and Greek thoughts, Paul said, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. If you and I may thus make the point for our day, Paul said, given what is able to be seen in this universe, what is able to be appreciated on a daily basis, being the character of the physical body, the things we see in nature about us, or the stars that hang in the sky above us, these things testify there's a God of heaven and man has no excuse if he will not let his eyes guide him to appreciate that there is a God. Is it thus no wonder the ancient psalmist said, the fool has said in his heart there is no God, Psalm 53 verse 1. Thus, we should understand there is coming a day of judgment. And even those scientists and others who think they can explain things with a big bang and explain things without God, they are going to have no excuse, none, for even claiming that there was never a God. For God has filled their life with evidence and they simply chose to ignore it. That will not be a happy place to be for those individuals. Notice God created. The reality of the creation then perhaps can be closed with the thought of Hebrews 3 verse 4. On that occasion, an interesting line of logic is employed. And the line of logic, of course, emanates at the Savior, but along the way, a very powerful and compelling statement is made. A statement that reads, Every house had a builder, but he who built all things is God. This universe, just like a well-built house, not a one of us would drive by a roadway and see a house and say, a tornado sure did bring a nice house about. The character of the wind and the rain and the other things by happenstance fashioned that house. You and I would be laughed out of the car if we made any such statement like that. And yet to see this universe and its true grandeur, 
and to claim that it was an accident, one must really be kidding. Notice every house has a builder. Hebrews 3 verse 4, and he who built all things is God. But so far, having noted that in the beginning God created, what did he create? Let's turn our attention to the next statement in this verse. Notice that the next word that appears, <clears throat> the heaven. In the beginning, God created the heaven. We immediately appreciate an interesting usage of that word heaven, and it will be used many, many more times in the scriptures throughout the Bible that follows. First thing to appreciate is in Hebrew, the word is plural. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, plural. And most of the other translations that I consulted did list it as plural. The ASV, for example, and many others. God created the heavens. It's easy then to appreciate that the Bible speaks of more than one heaven, but we must be cautious and a bit careful. There is that heaven where God's throne is, referenced, for instance, in, in the book of Psalms, Psalms 11, for verses 3 and 4. We should appreciate that this apparently doesn't refer to that heaven, for God was already enthroned in his position as the ruler of all things. He chose to bring this universe into creation. The other heavens that are mentioned, there's outer space. It's called heaven. The place where the stars are. More than once, the stars of the heavens are mentioned. But in addition, there's this place where the birds fly. That's also called the heavens. Didn't our Lord refer to the birds of the heavens? It would seem then that the opening statement and the opening pronouncement makes reference to that heaven of outer space is what was here under description. Later, God will put stars in those heavens on day four. In addition, might we see that these heavens, it would seem, encompass the more closely positioned places to the surface of this planet. Those things were brought about. And as that took place, God would fill those heavens with numbers of things on the days that followed. On day five, the birds would come along. Again, day four, the quasars and stars and various other beautiful luminaries that adorn the heavens. All of those things would fill these places. And might we notice that back in Romans 1 verse 20, invisible things were again mentioned. We now know that we're somewhat blessed that many things telescopes have now revealed to us that they in the ancient day could never have seen with the unaided eye. Doesn't this all testify concerning the heavens, that it truly is a vast, vast place. That alone testifies, doesn't it, of God's greatness. You and I think of distances around the earth as being large, and yet one, we're told that the distances involved in the solar system and the universe are far larger than even that. Consider those stars that we see. How many of them are there? God told Abraham early on in the book of Genesis, that those stars can, treated, can be treated in such a way his seed would be numbered as much. If you can number the stars, that will be as the, as the number of your seed. Later, the psalmist would refer to them as almost numberless. Today, we understand the vastness of this universe is a testimony to truly the creative power of God. And that creative power seen not only in the vastness, but in the number of things that fill it. Scientists still have no idea ultimately how many stars there are, 
the nearest estimate, the latest one that I've seen, numbers it into the multiplied trillions. But who knows how many more there may be. The thought then of that text maybe helps us to recall Nehemiah 9 verse 6, where the heaven of heavens is mentioned. And Amos 5 8, where again God's activity and the vastness thereof is explained in texts that help us still recognize truly how marvelous and how fantastic that creation is. Even Hezekiah, who certainly was no scientist, but in 2 Kings 19, even he made reference to the nature of God's creative activity as seen in the heavens, testifying of the nature of who God is. It's still interesting, isn't it, to think about those Greek gods and Roman ones who often, it was so claimed, had great power, but never a power as great as the God you and I know is the true God. For the heavens testify of it. In Psalm 119, do we still not see the heavens mentioned more than once in regard to God's greatness and His creative activity? And in Psalm 19, verse number 1, we still on that occasion read, The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare it. Maybe that leads us to the very last statement then in this verse. Not only did God create the heavens, but also the earth. This marvelous orb, this planet on which we live. Science still somewhat is at a loss for words to explain the uniqueness of this planet. It doesn't seem to matter where the astronomer points his telescope. There is nobody like this one. We're called the blue planet for the abundance of water that is upon its surface. It has an atmosphere that's comprised of these gases that are necessary for life. No other planet has these things. No other one has even been found close to it. We are the right distance from a body that can provide energy, namely the sun. So far, scientists haven't found anything else even close. God created the heavens and the earth. And might we again note, the earth didn't come about by accident or happenstance, and it did not evolve this way. It came about by the special activity of a creator who intended it to be inhabited. And I use that word specifically. For in Isaiah 45, verse 18, that's what Isaiah said. He created earth to be inhabited. Is it any wonder then in the days that followed, God filled the surface of this planet with life? There was the vegetable life on day three where the grasses and the plants, and then on two days later, on day five, the waters brought forth the life in the seas and the birds of the air. And then on day six, the land animals, such as human beings and dinosaurs and monkeys and all the others that live on land. God filled this place with life, and it still has continued so. When God created this earth, isn't it interesting that at least at the outset, according to verse number 2, it did not have the circumstances that you and I so easily associate with it today. For notice in verse number 2 of Genesis 1, it says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. But you see, this initial creation would, on the very next days that followed, be transformed into a place that was to be inhabited. That transformation, again, testifies of God's greatness, the absolute power of His handiwork. 
The psalmist in Psalm 104 on many occasions in that chapter speaks about how God takes care of the life that is in his creation, providing the necessary things for life such as water and sustenance and nourishment and food. All of it is attributed to God. Yet one more time, it is somewhat an insult to him to attribute it to merely hum humanity, ourselves, and in fact, even to claim it's so-called Mother Nature doesn't do it justice. For we understand God put all these things into place, and they have continued. Is it any wonder when Noah stepped off the ark in Genesis chapter 8? We read, especially in the last verse of that chapter, the fantastic pronouncement that the seasons will continue, the summer and the winter, the spring and the fall, the harvest and the sowing time shall continue unabated. For that was the plan that God brought in the reality of the earthside seasons that we appreciate from day to day. In fact, the statement that closes Genesis 1 verse 1 might remind us of another appearance of that phrase later in 2 Peter 3. Notice God created the heavens and the earth, and yet Peter said, we look for new heavens and a new earth. Did Peter mean that we as Christians are anxiously awaiting the time God will remake this planet and fashion a new heaven to surround it in a physical way in which you and I shall live in utopian existence for eons to come? That's not what the Lord taught through Peter. In fact, that phrase in 2 Peter 3 is a quotation from Isaiah. Three times in the book of Isaiah that text is found in chapters 65 and 66. It has nothing to do with that, which is a remade earth, as the premillennialist would claim. It is a statement of the existence that you and I will enjoy in a place that has all the needs met for you and me. It'll be heaven itself. That's the place we long to be. That's the place we look forward to inhabiting. As great as this earth is, and you and I have tonight tried to express to ourselves how great God has fashioned the universe. That perhaps leads to one final question. If this earth is a testimony, and the universe as well, to God's handiwork and his ability to create, I wonder what heaven must be like. A place especially suited and especially fit for those that are his dearly beloved children those whom he sent his son to die for. If God made earth for even people who won't accept his son, I wonder what heaven will be like. Make sure you find out, friend. Make sure to make your calling and election sure. Second Peter, again, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And that leads me to close the lesson in this fashion. We have reminded ourselves of some reflections of the creation. In the beginning, started it all in time, God... He was their creator, and we should never attribute any of the creation to any other being. He created an action verb that recognizes for us God's creative capability and the fact that it's unlimited. He created the heavens and the earth. These things testify of his ability. And the most recent question I ask, what does that then lead us to wonder about heaven? In Revelation 21, heaven was described by John the best way he could describe it. He used various precious gems to describe the foundation and a roadway that's paved with gold. He described it as a sea of glass standing there before those that are the saints. Friend, that truly is a majestic scene. 
I can only think that it'll be far grander than what John's description may have allowed him to describe. He used the best words he could find. Don't you want to be sure to be ready to go to that place? If you're not sure tonight, don't wait any longer. We're about to stand in a moment and hymn this song that Brother Harold has selected. If you're not right with God tonight, let this creation testify of the God who made it all and make sure you're found faithful in His sight. If we could help you tonight in your confession and baptism, we'd be happy to do it. If we could pray on your behalf for your rededication, we'd be honored to do that. If either of these things would be the need of your heart tonight, won't you let it be known while together we stand and while we sing.